0: Again, happy new year. I I do hope that that's true. I hope that 2023 is a happy year for you. Uh, Maybe you have some milestones you're looking forward to or personal goals. Uh, Maybe you'll actually stick to your uh, new year's resolution this year. Uh, For me, I'm I'm looking forward to my brother uh, getting married in the summer. Uh, For my other brother and his wife having their first baby, I'm looking forward to graduating. Uh, These are are happy moments that I'm really, really excited for in 2023. And I hope that there are many of those for you as well. Um, however, if, if past experience uh, is, tells us anything, there will probably be, for most of us, some unhappy moments as well. Uh, some of us, you know, we, maybe we ex- experience the loss of a loved one. Or uh, we may struggle with depression and, and, and dark thoughts that just kind of make us feel disconnected from joy or from emotion. Some of us may struggle financially uh, or relationally. Maybe we'll suffer uh, betrayal and and face personal attack. And and as much as we don't really like to think about those things, and as much as we don't want to just go through life afraid and worrying about what the next bad thing is going to be, the reality is that life, as we all know, brings uh, both joy and pain. And so what is important then for us today is to think about these things, to think ahead and, and, and know how to respond when life becomes harder, when we find ourselves lost in a fog of, of grief and pain, when we don't know who to turn to or who we can trust. Who do we turn to? Who can we trust? For the Christians in the room, you, you know the answer that I'm trying to dredge out. But if you're anything like me, those, those Sunday school answers of Jesus is the one we turn to. And reading the Bible is what I'm supposed to do is, is usually not my default response, my default reaction to suffering. A lot of times I, I tend to shut down or uh, turn to distractions like TV or anything that can get my mind off of the pain. Maybe I'll wallow in a bit of self-pity. In Psalm 31, David finds himself in circumstances of extreme suffering. There's people that are dragging his name through the mud who are lying about him, who are trying to kill him. And he describes in uh, the psalm how his eyes are wasted from grief, how he's been crying so much that he can barely see anymore. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like this? But while David is in this this these circumstances of distress, he turns to the Lord and finds refuge in him. And what we'll see today as we look at Psalm 31 is that although turning to God and trusting in him, finding refuge in him doesn't take away the pain, it doesn't remove us from the situation that we're in, taking refuge in the Lord will always, always, always be enough to see us through every circumstance, every trial, every kind of Pain and suffering. He is always enough. Why? How is He enough? Because God is strong enough to protect us from anything that life may bring, and He is kind enough to care. So, the big idea of Psalm 31 is take refuge in the Lord because He is strong and kind. Would you please read along with me, starting at verse 1. <clears throat> To the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame, In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily, be a rock of refuge for me, and a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and in your, for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction and you have known the distress of my soul You have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul, my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow. My years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity. My bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and in Object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Yahweh. I say, You are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. O how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said on my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but when you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help, Love the Lord, all you, his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. So, the first thing we see, the first reason why we can trust in the Lord in times of difficulty is in the first five verses. It's because he is our strong protector. Verses 1 to 5 are are an interesting blend of of confidence, confident declarations that God is his refuge. And then also this tone of desperation, this this cry for help. He confidently says, in you, O Yahweh, do I take refuge. You are my rock and my fortress. You take me out of this net. You take me out of the net. This is confident hope. But then especially in verse 2, this different tone comes on incline your ear to me rescue me speedily be a rock of refuge for me a strong fortress to save me and when we look at a lot of the lament psalms this is a pretty common thing we see this mixture of both confidence and crying for help and so what does this mean does this mean that he's writing some of this psalm before the the situations resolved and after no What this tells us is that even though God is is absolutely strong enough to protect us, to deliver us out of, and to guide us through whatever we may be facing, taking refuge in Him is not a delete button for trials. It doesn't make the the situation go away. We still have to face them and whatever difficulty they bring. But when we choose to trust in God as our refuge... As our strong protector, we have all that we need and infinitely more to get through it and probably, Lord willing, come out on the other side as a better person, a stronger person, someone who's more holy, more like Jesus. This first section, this first five verses ends with David releasing his grip on the situation he he releases control to the Lord. Look at verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Into your hand I commit my spirit. It's kind of an interesting phrase. Uh, in, in the time and culture that the psalm was written in, the spirit, your spirit, was thought of as, as the animating life force, the very core of who you were, who, what makes you you, what makes you alive. The word that's used here for spirit is is also used for breath in other places in the Old Testament. And so, for example, in Genesis 2, the way that God makes Adam alive is to breathe the breath of life into him, to breathe the spirit of life into him. And he makes him alive. And so by saying this, what David is saying is, is not just that he's committing the physical safety of his body the physical well-being of himself to God, hoping that he comes out of this situation without any sort of physical wear and tear. This statement, into your hand, I commit my spirit is to commit his very self, the core of all who he is, in, in the most deeply spiritual and personal sense, into the hand of God, trusting that God's will will be done. By saying this, he recognizes that the physical danger of his situation doesn't go away, it doesn't disappear, but he recognizes that God will provide protection for him, if not physically, then in a much fuller sense. And if that verse sounds familiar, uh, it's probably because these are Jesus' final words on the cross. Into your hand I commit my spirit. And the night before Jesus Jesus is crucified, he prays to the Father and he he pleads with him. He asks him that if it's possible that he wouldn't have to go through the kind of sort the, the kind of torture and humiliation that that crucifixion was. But the answer he gets to that is no. His his death in this way was a necessary part of the plan. And so with that in mind, Jesus' quotation of Psalm 31 is really significant. Although he didn't want to, Christ willingly and obediently went to the cross. And history has changed forever as a result. After Jesus commits himself to the will of the Father, although he doesn't want to, right after he says, into your hand I commit my spirit, it says he breathes his last. So in the beginning, God breathes his life into Adam, the man who would later bring sin into the world. And at Calvary, Jesus breathes his life out into the will of the Father and makes it possible for us to find refuge from sin's ever-reaching grasp. It's a beautiful and wonderful reversal of sin's reign. And so taking refuge in God does not mean that the difficulty goes away. When I was in high school, I worked at McDonald's, as I'm sure there are other of you, uh, as I'm sure most, or not most of you, some of you have, or other fast food places. And the last summer I worked there, before coming, uh, moving up to Cambridge to go to school, I worked the midnight shift. On that midnight shift, uh, which was a lot of fun because everyone was like 18 and 19, um, I I had the, like, grossest, by far nastiest job you could have there. I had to clean all the oil vats and the grills every night to get them ready for uh, the next day. And if you've ever eaten a Big Mac, you know how much grease gets on that burger and stays there and soaks through the cardboard box. So you can imagine how much grease and fat there was on the uh, the oil vats and the grills after frying up, like, a thousand patties that day. And so when I would clean them, the equipment had to stay hot. But I, and so I had to wear all this protective equipment. I had to put on these big, bulky, burn-proof gloves and this thick, super-heavy apron and a face shield to protect me. Uh, but putting on that gear, that protective equipment, didn't mean that I didn't have to do the job. I still had to do it. They still needed to be cleaned. The job still needed to be done. And actually, the job was a lot more difficult with those huge gloves on that I could barely grab anything with. The job still needed to be done. The difference was that I was protected really from from any real danger or any real injury while getting the job done. And taking refuge in the Lord is a lot like that. The job still needs to be done. The difficulty, the sorrow, the pain still needs to be uh, experienced and gone through. We don't escape difficult things. And sometimes staying close to the Lord makes the situation a bit more difficult on a human level. But since he is strong enough to protect us and kind enough to care, we're protected from any real eternal danger. In his protection, we are safe, despite any danger or pain or suffering that life will bring, because he is our strong protector. He's also our attentive deliverer. Verses 6 to 13, David continues to affirm his trust in the Lord, his trust in God's ability to deliver him from the enemies that are that are out for him. But he starts to bring in the context of his suffering. We get to see a bit more of a picture of, of what the situation is that David is in. In verse 6, he says that he hates those who pay regard to worthless idols. So, so this Situation involves people that are idolizing something, worshiping something, valuing something that is less than God as if it's more than him. In verses 9 and 10, he says that his eyes are wasted from grief, that his soul and his body are wasted, that his life is spent with sorrow and his strength fails him. In Verses 11 to 13, we See, it's not just an internal struggle or a one-on-one interpersonal struggle, that, but this is a public thing that's happening. He's become an object of dread to his acquaintances. His neighbors uh, see him as a reproach. Those who see him in the street run away. People are scheming, plotting together to take his life. He feels terror on every side. And You can imagine what kind of, stress, what kind of anxiety this kind of situation would, would cause someone. And the public nature of, of whatever situation this is that he's in is, is really significant. In uh, jumping briefly back to verse 1, he starts off the psalm by saying, let me never be put to shame. Shame in that culture was much more public than we tend to think of it today. We, we tend to think of it as an internal feeling of an unworthiness. Uh, One of my counseling professors put it this way, that guilt says I've done wrong and shame says I'm wrong. Shame is a feeling that can obliterate people's lives, their sense of self and worth. However, shame in that culture uh, carried with it uh, much more public sense of public disgrace, of humiliation. And so that's not to say that there wasn't any emotional component to it, but shame was, was nearly always some sort of public humiliation. People knew about what was going on, and that would bring shame to your name, to your family. And so when we read in verses 11 and 12 that people run away from him, that they flee from him when they see him in the street, that he's become a reproach to his neighbors, that is shame. And this is one of the reasons why it's so significant, so important, and so uh, uh, worth taking note of that he sticks close to the Lord and aligns himself with his righteous God instead of these, these wicked people who are caught in idolatry and lying. Social pressure can have so much power over us and it probably would have been easier for David to kind of compromise a little bit or stay quiet about whatever they were lying about and kind of try to fit in and, and join these people, appease these people who hated him. For the people of God, there will always be social pressure to conform. There will always be reasons that we have to maybe say and think and believe and do what is popular and this can often come at the expense of believing what's true. As our culture continues to move in a direction that is antithetical to the Christian faith, as beliefs and values in culture begin to clash more and more with what the Bible says, we're, we're probably going to face increasing social pressure to fit in. And you may face the reality of, of public shaming. If, if you say what... If you say you believe what the Bible has to say about sexuality or gender or or abortion issues, for example, there's many more things. This is why it is so incredibly important that we have put our trust in the Lord, that we find our identity and our confidence, our self-worth in Him, in Him alone, and not anything else in culture. When we take these things to the Lord and choose to find refuge in Him, social pressure, the desire to fit in, to conform, becomes a lot less appealing. That's not to say that it it goes away, but the desire is, is less because we know for sure where we find our confidence. We know for sure who has seen us through the, the rest of our lives and who will see us through in the future And so for David despite this shame despite this public humiliation he trusts in the Lord in verse 7 he, he says something that seems out of place given his situation he says uh, in verse 7 I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you've seen my affliction and you know you've known the distress of my soul Rejoicing, again, in the midst of suffering isn't a super uncommon thing in the Psalms, but no matter how many times I read it, no matter how many times I hear about it, it seems so hard, so so different and unrelatable sometimes to how I feel when I've gone through hard things. How can he be rejoicing when a, a few verses later he says that, His eyes are wasted from grief. His strength is failing him. His bones are wasting away. That doesn't sound like a situation to be rejoicing in. Like we've talked about, the the difficulty doesn't just disappear when we find refuge in God. But like David, we can rejoice in the midst of difficulty because of God's steadfast love. How and why? Look again at verse seven. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Why? Because you have seen my affliction and you have known the distress of my soul. Think about that for a moment. The God who created the universe with a word who sustains everything that you see and know, who gives your life purpose and meaning and reason, He knows you. He knows what you're going through. He sees your pain. He knows your distress. He sees you. In his book, uh, Knowing God, J.I. Packer says this. What matters supremely, therefore, is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it. The fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, as one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. Rejoicing is is counterintuitive and often seems impossible when we're in the midst of suffering, but God's steadfast love is so deeply, profoundly, and unexplainably good that when we choose to turn to him and find refuge in his steadfast love, while the storms rage around us, somehow, despite this suffering and pain, we can rejoice and be glad because we are known by him. It's really something that you have to experience to truly know what that feels like for this to really make sense, to become real to you. And if you have gone through times of of intense pain or stress, but have still chosen to, find refuge in God's love, you know what this is. You know what this feels like. And so this kind of rejoicing doesn't necessarily like look, look like you know jumping up and down and clapping your hands and skipping home down the sidewalk. But it is one of the most comforting feelings in the world to experience. When we trust in the Lord's faithfulness and rejoice in his steadfast love, he knows the distress of your soul. He sees your pain, and Hebrews says that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he has gone through that exact same kind of suffering and pain, even death. He knows you, and he cares for you, and he is able to deliver you out of sorrow and into rejoicing in his presence. He is our attentive deliverer. God is not only our strong protector, he's not only our attentive deliverer, but he is also our just preserver. He is the God who acts. He is the one who brings true justice, true eternal blessing for the righteous, and just punishment for those who reject him. He is our just preserver. Verse 14 is a turning point in this psalm. He the tone transitions once again out of sorrow and grieving into hopeful anticipation of what God will do. Despite his suffering, in verse 14, he says this, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. He reminds himself of who God is. You are my God. There is an incredible amount of power in reminding ourselves of the truths of Scripture, of who God is and what he has done for us reflecting on his past faithfulness in our lives and in the lives of others. That's why testimonies can be so powerful. This is another reason why memorizing Scripture is so helpful in in difficulty as well. Suddenly a verse comes to your mind that uh, comforts you, that brings you peace, that helps you know what to do. And after David reminds himself of who God is, he is able to say with confidence in verse 15, my times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. At this point, remember, nothing about his situation has changed. There's been no movement in in his difficulty. He still needs to be rescued from his trial, and yet he's able to say confidently, my times are in your hand. Everything about his situation, everything is under the sovereign care and control of the Lord. And he's able to release that control to God. God will do whatever he needs to do. And David finds comfort in just letting that burden go. That burden of control. In the next few verses, we see David appealing to God's justice for his righteousness. He asks Basically, that the wicked would get what's coming to them and that the righteous would be blessed. Look at uh, verses 17 to 22. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the, let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I'm cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. He asks here once again that uh, he wouldn't be put to shame, in verse 17, but that the wicked would be put to shame. And this isn't coming from a place of kind of immature, wanting revenge. He's asking that God's truth would be known, that his righteousness would be manifest in the earth, and that the lies that these people are spreading about him would be brought into the light. And the shame that he previously experienced from these lies would be turned on the people who are lying, the liars, as people begin to realize who is in the right and who's in the wrong. What this tells us about God is that ultimate justice can only be done by him. David gives up control over the situation and instead asks that God would do what is right. He asks God to silence the lips of liars, to bring shame upon them, to send them to Sheol, the afterlife. He asks God for protection and blessing and again declares and reminds himself of the goodness of God. And he asks that God would bless those who fear him publicly. In verse 19, oh, how abundant is your goodness which you've stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. This this public goodness being poured out on on God's people is the reversal of the shame that these enemies brought on him and tried to bring him down with. No amount of shame or public disgrace that these people could conjure up could possibly outweigh the goodness of God being poured out on his people. It's no contest. Suddenly, in the light of, of the goodness of God, whatever you may be facing seems to become a lot less anxiety-inducing. And our future hope of glory offers even more of that. Romans 8 says that the sufferings of this present age aren't even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. There is nothing, no suffering or shame or pain that will compare to the hope of glory in eternity with Christ Jesus The last two verses here, 23 and 24. Call us to give all glory and praise to the Lord. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. He is the God of justice. He defines what justice is, and because of that, We can love him and praise him and take courage in who he is as we wait for him to act. So Psalm 31 is is a bit of an emotional roller coaster. We start out with this kind of confident declaration of God as his refuge, as his strong fortress. We move into some grief. His eyes are wasting away. He feels like his strength is failing him. He feels abandoned and lonely. He feels like he's been forgotten as if he were dead. And then it moves back into hopeful anticipation of God's justice in action. And so, listen, it's it's okay in in hard times to not respond with the kind of, you know, resolute courage that we see in superhero movies, you're going to go up and down. You know, our emotions are going to rock us a bit up and down and side to side. Sometimes we'll get discouraged and beat down. We'll lose hope, and that's that's normal. But we can take courage in knowing that there is a God who never changes, who is never unstable, Who never falters. He will always be there to protect you, for you to turn to and take refuge in, because He is strong enough to protect us and He is kind enough to care. And so, church, as as we wait for the Lord, be strong. Let your heart take courage. No matter what this year may bring, whether it's the best year of your life or it turns out to be the worst. Take courage in knowing that God is your strong protector. His power and might are more than enough to handle anything you're going through. He is your just preserver. He is the one who will act. He is your attentive deliverer. He sees and knows your heart. He is the one who will sustain you through uh, the highest moments and the lowest moments of life. This year, commit your spirit into the hand of God and trust that he is in control, find refuge in the Lord, because he is strong and kind. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you for who you are, God. We we praise you for your strength, your might. We praise you for your steadfast love. We praise you for your justice. And Lord, we wait for you. We wait for you to return and make all things right. And as we wait for you, Lord, would you help us to be strong? Would you help us to take courage, not in ourselves, but in you? Because you never change, you never falter, you are always trustworthy, you are always faithful. And all of the things that you have brought us through up to this very moment, Lord, we trust and know with confidence that you will continue to do that and even more for the rest of our lives and into eternity. Help us, Lord, when we face suffering, difficulty, and stress. Help us to release control and commit our spirit into your hands. Because you are a good God, and your goodness is stored up for those who fear you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who made all this possible, and for his sake we pray. Amen.